Thanks for visiting the Arrogance of Infinity podcast. Every tale is based on a real-life story. Every moral has lived and died a billion times. Tonight's tale is another that touches on my childhood in the late 1960s and early 70s, the most formative years for me. The tale involves my first love, long before I knew the who, what, when, where, and hows of love. Part 30. Searching for Normal The year 1968 was anything but typical. For the first time ever, humans transplanted a heart and circled the moon. A pandemic, the H3N2 Hong Kong flu, took millions in confirmation of globalism. Fifty-five days separated the assassinations of our nation's reverend, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and his friend and presidential candidate, Robert F. Kennedy. Thousands more Americans died during the Viet Cong's Tet Offensive. Then, three months later, U.S. soldiers massacred 500 Vietnamese villagers in My Lai. The Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia, wanting to be free, and North Koreans seized the USS Pueblo for trying to peek through the keyhole of their regime. In 1968, social reformists protested the Democrats at their convention in Chicago. Smith and Carlos raised Black Panther fists at the Olympics. A bank in Philadelphia hired a machine named ATM to replace a teller. The first Big Mac cost 49 cents. And the maiden voyage of the 747 luxury liner went airborne with a piano bar. Our family lived on Normal Street. No euphemism intended. We lived at 108 North Normal in Macomb, a small city, or big town, of about 20,000 that is home to Western Illinois University. Our house was three blocks from the campus where Pop accepted a job as food service director so we could move closer to Mom's family. I was in first grade, and my lifestyle outside of school amounted to little more than playing with trucks and exploring, so no matter where we lived, life was probably going to be normal. But this was a time of seminal change for the USA, the world, and especially for me. My best friend back in Bloomington, Minnesota, Jimmy Brinkhouse, was a head taller than me. We pounded around together, built forts, climbed trees, ate wild rhubarb, and even hopped a train. In Illinois, he was replaced by a little girl named Ginger. Jennifer Ginger Hopkins lived across the normal street. And even though I have sisters just months in either direction, Ginger picked me as a pal. She and I met in the middle at play as we dug roads and fashioned castles in the dirt to create fairy tale empires for her village of trolls and little kittle dolls. We sneaked into college gymnasiums with access and inspiration from my resourceful brother to fearlessly jump from folded bleachers onto the big white competition trampolines that would pogo bounce us high into the air to land on padded mats that were almost as thick as we were tall. We'd drive like grown-ups without accident in an abandoned car in the alley behind her house. 
We waved sparklers through firecrackers and lit charcoal snakes on the 4th of July, with only minor incident. There were long treks on bikes past the houseful of hippies to ride up, down, and around a newly paved parking lot at the Methodist Church four blocks away. We explored the mysterious woods on campus to discover an ancient, moss-covered amphitheater that nobody else in the world knew about. We ate lots of peanut butter and jelly. It was two blocks to Dairy Queen for a nickel cone after I helped my brother with his paper route, or when she found a returnable soda bottle, or one of us lost a tooth. We saved a jackrabbit from injury and nurtured him in a makeshift cage that could hold in a wounded bunny, but not out a prowling tomcat, then mourned together. We lived and learned in a typical age on a normal street. Ginger's parents were groovy professors who went by uncomfortable names, George and Elaine, in place of the Mr. and Mrs. They sent her to a private school, so she wasn't at Woodrow Wilson Elementary to stop me from stealing Stanley B. Craft's eraser, or to save me from Mrs. Sticklewickle Popsicle and the well-earned punishment of a whack on the hands with a rubber-tipped map pointer and half an hour in a corner wearing a dunce cap. We lived in an ordinary moment when a little black-and-white admiral was replaced by an 18-inch Zenith TV that showed both channels, including the NBC Peacock, in magnificent color. It was common for us to envy rich families who could afford battery-operated toys, as well as the batteries that were not included. Our first rides on a school bus took us way across town to a huge gymnasium where we'd line up to be inoculated against smallpox, the measles, and polio. On automobile rides, when grown-ups were driving, Ginger and I would see littered curbs and ditches. Throwing garbage out car windows wasn't normal, but it wasn't illegal yet either. And once a car or farm implement reached a point beyond the healing magic of bailing wire, it became part of the environment. As an amusement, a gigantic planter, or new habitat for wildlife. In 1968, rusted roadside iron was as common as a smallpox scar. In that year, it was uncommon for differing cultures to interact on a regular basis. The lessons to love one another as oneself had been delivered for centuries, but it still didn't feel normal. The love lacked a sincere sense of trust, safety, and plausibility. We separately coexisted with and without scars. The simple, fearless exploration of the normal neighborhood in an atypical year couldn't last. Ginger eventually went off to Chicago to become grown-up Jennifer. I left too, maintaining my juvenile penchant for selfish exploration and discovery. We found new towns, new best friends, and stayed steady on a quest for new normal. It led to a remarkable marriage for me, a new home, and new friends who became family and reintroduced fearlessness and new fears in a neighborhood 
where our daughter could begin her own explorations. 2020, like 1968, is anything but typical. I don't know where my old best pal Ginger is, but I know Jimmy Brinkhouse is still taller. And I know we can't change the challenge of grown-up life by pretending, or through what-if dreams of a fairy tale empire. I do know I can reflect and rekindle a childhood spirit to help bring context to a typical age of atypical events. I can conjure a day when normal meant the joy of innocent hope and the courage summoned by natural challenge. The normal house in Macomb is gone, replaced by another ATM. The USA is trade partners with Vietnam, and the Soviet Union no longer exists. There's also a new worldwide pandemic, and the North Korean government is still dictated by a man named Kim. Technology and medical innovation continues to surge in geometric progression as protests magnify the intrinsic inequity of humanity. There's no going back to normal. It only exists as a thoroughfare of memories and as a side road of hope where a dream can drive.